Good morning, Living Hope Church. It's good to see everybody. Online, outside, it is good to be with the people of God. It is always good. May we never take this for granted again. Amen? Amen. Well, friends, if you would turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians. We are in Ephesians chapter 5. Today, we're going to pick up reading in verse 21. We're going to work our way through the end of the text. I know this is the passage of Scripture that many of you brought your spouses here to hear this morning. So, let's see what happens. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, again, so thankful to be with you today. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would do what only you can do in this place. God, we continue this atmosphere, this attitude of worship turning our hearts and minds toward you as we've done in song and in prayer. So now we do as we open your word and we hear your voice. Holy Spirit, do what you want done in the life of your church today. We pray these things in your magnificent name. Amen. Amen. Guys, family is now an apologetic Family is now an apologetic. Here's what I mean by that. Apologetics is often the defense of the truth of the Christian gospel, the truth of the things of Scripture and of God's Word. And I firmly believe that family, the way that God has designed it and built it and intended it, has now become an apologetic in our culture. God's design for marriage and family is a testimony to his existence, and to his good will for us. Now, this isn't the first time that family fills this role inside of a culture. This was also the case when Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians here. Guys, we need to understand that as we read this passage of Scripture, that in some ways is very familiar to us. Uh, We've probably watched a lot of videos or gone to conferences that have dwelt on this passage and other similar ones like it in Scripture. We need to understand that it doesn't, doesn't just stand alone. It sits inside of its own cultural context. And as we understand what Paul is dealing with, we will understand better, I think, what this passage has to say to us. Guys, we need to understand that the Roman world treated marriage very differently than the Christian world did for 2,000 years after that. Inside of the Roman world, the the world that the Ephesians were saved out of, the world that the Ephesians still lived in, marriage was largely a legal arrangement for posterity. The idea of love in marriage was largely in Roman culture, in politics, in art, in philosophy. Love was largely presented as lust, not as love. Sexuality was an almost no-limits reality for men with means. And women in their culture, the vast majority of women in their culture had very few options available for them. Many of them, especially if they were not in the higher echelons of society, in their social culture were really not much better than the slave caste in the Roman world. So what Paul does here and what the New Testament does as well is it presents a radical break from their culture's view of marriage and men and women 
and children and love and morality and everything else that we currently include in the notion of marriage and love. It's been noted by many that very early on the Christian church grew by and large uh, through uh, the, the, the conversion of women and of slaves. And it's been guessed by a lot of historians that that's the case because they found safety in the Christian home that they didn't have outside of the Christian home. It was a powerful institution in the early Christian world. So guys, as we look at this passage of Scripture, I want us to see it through a particular kind of lens in the work that it does for us. So here's one of our guiding thoughts today. Guys, Paul's guidelines for women and men are aimed at making us better imitators of Christ and thus better servants to each other. These are aimed at making us better imitators of Christ. That's the bottom line of this passage of Scripture when we talk about the relationships between men and women and children inside of marriage and the home. Especially, this is the case, inside of some of the most intense relationships that we have between husband and wife and parents and kids. So often, guys, in our closest relationships, in our selfishness, we are tempted to use those relationships for our own good. But what if, guys, what if Christ calls us into marriage and family for the good of others? What if this is part of what God is doing with the institution of marriage? What if our personal best is found in our effort to make those around us thrive? What if this is part of what God is doing when he puts us together inside of families? And so it is today, guys, I firmly believe that we find ourselves back in the position of making the case for a mother, a father, for children, for family the way that God designed it. If you're not feeling it yet, you will feel this soon, and I think this is the case. Believing that marriage is between one biological male and one biological female is becoming more and more counter-cultural, isn't it? Believing that this is the best environment for children is also more and more counter-cultural. Believing that this is best for society as a whole is becoming more and more counter-cultural. So we believe these things as Christians, but then living like these things are actually true is becoming a rediscovered country for Christians, a way in which our witness to this world intensifies, a way in which our devotion to Jesus Christ, our witness to the world about who Christ is, is intensified in God's design for marriage and for the family. I want to take just a second and lay out a little bit of the, the cultural landscape. And a lot of this you guys know or you feel or you sort of sense, but maybe haven't put words to it yet. Not even two weeks ago, 
This Supreme Court decision comes down. It's known now just as Bostock. And in that decision, what they did is they rewrote civil rights legislation to redefine sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. So whatever it is you feel or think like you are, now that language has been rewritten. And trying to figure out how many dominoes are going to fall in our culture as a result is just enormous. This literally rewrites law. It rewrites the way our culture understands the roles and the positions of male and female, even our belief in the differences between men and women. If you go back and see, I'm, I'm a little bit of a dork this way. You go and you read the first two paragraphs of the majority decision for Bostock. And those first two paragraphs, I will boil them down for you. The argument basically is, well, guys, times, they are a-changing. So we just have to change what words mean. So this is new, and we're going to feel the results of this. We have three major political movements in our culture right now. One of them, <clears throat> excuse me, in their What We Believe page, they say outright that we, quote, disrupt the Western prescribed nuclear family structure. They exist to destroy mother, father, children. They exist to do that. Why would they exist to disrupt the normal sense of family, the order of family that God has given us? One of the two major political parties in our culture, in their national platform, they say, quote, we applaud the decision by the Supreme Court that recognized that LGBT people, like other Americans, have the right to marry the person that they love. A complete redefinition of marriage itself and based on a moral order, anyone that they love that has no end to it. See, this is part of the wave that's moving in our culture right now that's just becoming more and more accepted. Now, it's also becoming really cool and hip. If you really want to be cool and hip with the kids, what you have to do on your Twitter page is say, I'm a Marxist, right? We are hearing that more and more. Now, here's why this is important in this context. Karl Marx wrote... And Marxism still believes today, that first quote I gave you about disrupting the Western nuclear family is from a Marxist society, an openly self-described Marxist society. Karl Marx wrote, and Marxists still believe that the way to give order to society, the way to produce justice in a society is to get rid of things like private property and the family structure. He actually wrote and believed and had still believed today for the last 150 years, the belief has been what we have to do is destroy the nuclear family. We actually have to get between parents and kids. Marxism teaches that the labor of children does not belong to their parents, it belongs to the state. We cannot allow parents to raise their children because they may raise their children incorrectly, so the state has to disrupt the family structure, and raise children the way the state wants children raised. So when people claim that they are Marxists, that's not just one option among many, and maybe it's okay. It's actually trying to pull apart the way that God designed us to live together in family. So guys, now, in many ways like it was 2,000 years ago, the, 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 the details are different though. Now we have this conflict of worldviews regarding the family. 
So guys, listen, when we talk about husband and wife, male and female, parents and children, here's how we might see this conflict of worldviews. Family was God's first building block for society. God puts that together, that's the foundation, and the rest of society is built upon that. In this other worldview that we're talking about, the state is the foundation for society, and everything gets built on that. It's God or it's the state. And this is part of the worldview conflict that we find ourselves in. So the follower of Jesus Christ believes in God's created order and believes in the goodness of that order for all of us. So in our passage of Scripture today, and we're going to spend a couple of weeks on section, how Paul talks about men and women and children and so on and so forth, because I want to make sure we know how wives have to submit. I just need to make sure, I'm just kidding, guys. Some of you don't know my sense of humor, right? I hear the clapping. God bless you, brother. Good luck this afternoon. All right. Our passage of Scripture today, and like I said, we're going to spend some time in this so that we kind of grab everything Paul's trying to say. A couple of thoughts for us. First, our created order is good for each other. It's not redefinable. It's fungible. It's not malleable. There aren't other options that are just as good as the order that God has given us. Our created order is good for us. And it's good for everybody. The standards that are talked about in this passage, they actually continue, and we'll talk about how this works, They continue Paul's emphasis on living in wisdom and light. That's where he's been since the beginning of chapter 4. In the middle of chapter 4, he begins to talk about walk in light and not in darkness. Walk in wisdom and not in foolishness. This passage continues that thought in the chapter. So this isn't about dominance and subjugation or who's going to make the final decision. Scripture encourages healthy marriages and homes by challenging us to live out most difficult and dynamic aspects of the life of Jesus Christ. And we're called to do it again in some of the most intense relationships we will ever have. It's where it is the hardest to do it, where we are called to do it. So our created order is good for each other. And in this thought, our Christian homes are witness. Our Christian's homes really are witness. Paul will eventually, and you know familiar with this passage, Paul will bring us eventually to Christ and the church. This is what he's talking about. But our relationships and family are reflections of that relationship and are witnesses of that relationship to each other and to the rest of the world. So let's read Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 21. The passage goes like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This concept of husbands and wives, the very next verse, then begins to speak about how husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church. 
This combination in marriage of husband and wife, biological male, biological female, really is the world's first institution. And it is actually, technically, how God created us to live with each other. We go all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And, God, and the scripture says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. That concept was so significant from the very beginning. Before we have mothers and fathers, the statement is, this is why the two of them live together and build a family. So this is God's first institution, and the rest of society is built on top of that. So guys, we understand biblically, and we understand every other way as well, that the union of male and female in marriage is a physical, psychological, and spiritual brute fact. We were created for each other. We were designed to complement each other in these ways and in many more ways. So guys, when the early Christians begin building these kinds of homes and marriages and families, and they begin building these kinds of networks of families as they would gather inside of other people's homes, as they would gather together as the body of Christ. They become networks of families, those who are married, those who are not yet married, those who are unmarried, the widows and the children and the husbands and the wives. They begin to build these kinds of homes and these kinds of networks inside of their church. It becomes, guys, a moral advance for their culture. The way that Romans handled marriage was good for men, especially those of means. It was, very, it was not very often good for anybody else inside of culture. So when Paul in the New Testament raises the family like this, places it in the context of God's creation and everything morally and spiritually that comes from that, it is a moral advance. Some of you have heard me say this half a dozen times. I'm going to continue to say it. Our culture is choosing the Roman way again. So here comes the church. We step in and we say, I know this is countercultural. I know I'm not taught this at college. I know I'm not supposed to believe this. But this is what God says. This is how it actually works. And I know it's good for us. I know it's good for us. And so it will be again for the church and for us. Stability and safety and meaning and purpose wrapped up in our networks of individuals and families living with each other to become more like Jesus Christ in mutual submission and love and respect. And the church is exactly the right place for this kind of support for this kind of word to be spoken, to be heard, to be digested, to be lived out. Whatever it is that we bring into the family of God, this is a place of grace. This is a place of the work of Jesus Christ. This is a place of wholeness and healing and health because I know that more and more what we call family just feels different or has all this pain inside of it. But guys, this is why we have a network that is a spiritual family. And a church needs to be a healthy, strong, supporting place for the things of God inside of our lives. So how is it 
that we live this out so that marriage becomes a witness, so that family becomes a witness to the ways of God. We started in verse 21. Most of your Bibles have a, have a section heading break, a kind of paragraph break between verse 21 and 22. My Bible does as well. It sort of resets your brain at verse 22 and calls it wives and husbands. So here now we're going to talk about how wives and husbands deal with each other. Something interesting happens in Paul's original letter. We've noticed this about the book of Ephesians, especially this book. Paul writes in these very long and complicated and convoluted sentences in the Greek. So when we translate it into the English to make sense of it, we break it up into smaller sentences and semicolons and we try to make sense of it. In this passage of Scripture, the sentence begins at verse 18 and ends at verse 22, at the end of verse 22. So that's Paul's sentence. Go back to verse 18 and take a quick look at where Paul begins this sentence. He says things like this, Don't get drunk, but be filled with the Spirit instead. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melodies to the Lord with each other. Give thanksgiving at all times for everything to our Heavenly Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And submit to one another. And that also means wives submit to your husbands. So it isn't a hard break that begins in verse 22. It is a continuation of Paul's thought to the church as a whole. This is how we walk in light instead of darkness. This is how we walk in wisdom now instead of foolishness. That was the way of life that you lived before you became followers of Jesus Christ. So it isn't a standalone thought, but it is one that continues Paul's call for our Christ-like treatment of each other. So he says, submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. So Paul does give this command of submission to each and every one of us. Guys, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are supposed to treat others as more important than ourselves. We quoted that passage of Scripture last week from Philippians chapter 2. You go back and you read those first handful of verses, and Paul implores with that church. He says, please, guys, I want you guys to think of each other the way that Christ thought of you. You see, Christ emptied himself of what he had in heaven so that he could live and walk among us as God so that we might see him and be saved and be with him forever. This is how Christ valued you. So I need you to value each other in the same way. Think of each other as more important than yourselves. So this isn't the only place where Paul says this kind of thing to Christians, right? Submit to one another and do it out of reverence. Now notice this theme, guys. This is important. We give these gifts to each other because of Christ. Our aim is Christ, out of reverence for Christ. That's why we give these gifts to each other. So this matter in verse 21 is true regardless of married or not married, male or female. In the church, this is how we treat each other. So this is part of what this tells me personally. My Christ-like attitude 
toward my sisters in Christ is that they are of infinite value and worth to my Savior and that my treatment of them should make them feel that way. Not as a tool, not as an object, not as someone who is less than me, but as someone who is of infinite value to my Creator. This is part of what this means for me in my interaction with the body of Jesus Christ. And again, especially in that most intense relationship, my relationship with my wife. What does it mean for me to do that? And Heather will tell you, I do this really well all the time. Please don't ask Heather if I do this really well all the time. (laughs) But this is my call. This is what Paul has asked me to do so that I can lift everyone else up above myself and allow them to be who God called them to be. And then Paul does say, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. How Paul clarifies what he means in this passage is really interesting, and he clarifies it in a few ways to help us understand what he means. First of all is a phrase that to our eyes just kind of goes by fairly quickly and it doesn't strike us. He says, to your own husband. Now, that's not a small detail because, again, to the women in that culture, they were in a political and economic and social sense, they were subject to every other male, especially older males or men of certain wealth and status and position inside of culture. So Paul says where this submission works between wife and husband is actually inside of the home and not, the, not in the same way to everybody else. So this is significant. He's actually raising the status of women in culture as a whole for Christian families. So it's important that Paul says to your own husband. Now we go all the way to the end here in verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respect her husband. So the notion of respect, the intention of submission is not subjugation, but a relationship of respect leading to the possibility of responsibility from the husband. So it's an attitude of respect that is offered by the wife inside of the home. And we'll talk about that more, I think, a little bit later on. And then this phrase, as to the Lord. This kind of attitude in marriage, guys, is first and foremost an act of submission to Christ. It's an act of submission to Christ. It is spiritual formation. Gary Thomas, an author who writes on marriage, um, I think quite well, writes an entire book about how marriage is not intended for my happiness, but for my holiness. That this is a laboratory for spiritual formation. This is a laboratory for some of the most intense and profound aspects of the life of Jesus Christ to be made real inside of me. If I can do this here, if I can show submission in terms of respect, if I can show sacrifice in terms of everything that I am and that I have inside of this relationship, I'm becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. So guys, notice this about what Paul is saying to all of us. The spiritual discipline of submission or of respect is not forced on the wife by the husband, but given by the wife. 
It is given in a sense of submission to Jesus Christ. It is something she does for Christ first and then for her family. Now, I've been around long enough to know that as soon as we started reading a passage of Scripture like this, there are some of you in this room, there are some of you who are watching this, there are some of you who are outside, you're itching, your skin is crawling, you have been so over-abused by this passage of Scripture. I've had students tell me in classes where we deal with passages of Scripture like this, they will tell me, I hate this passage of Scripture because what I have been told. The abuse of this passage of Scripture often happens when a husband demands submission or respect from his wife. The intention that Paul has here, he's speaking to wives. He's not speaking to husbands, make sure your wives submit. He's speaking to wives. Here's what you give Christ, and here's what results in your family. This is spiritual discipline. This is something we give to Jesus Christ in the home. And Paul doesn't stop there. He turns to husbands, and as he speaks to husbands, he actually has more for husbands. He speaks more to them by volume, and it's in this part of the passage where he begins to um, move the focus from right in front of us, and he's speaking about husbands and wives, and that focus deepens, and we begin to see the larger thought of Christ in his church. Verse 25, the rest of the passage goes like this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So we're speaking of Christ now, the example of Christ, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. We do what we think or feel is best for us, so why wouldn't we do that for our wives as well? But nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, and Paul grabs that passage from Genesis, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see, it is witness to God's grand plan. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respect her husband. Paul has a lot to say to husbands in this passage of Scripture. And by the end of this passage, Paul is talking primarily about Christ and his church. And we have learned that the home becomes this powerful example that is rooted inside of every neighborhood, rooted inside of every culture. It becomes a witness to Christ and his church. So part of what Paul says to husbands is he speaks of love and he speaks of laying down life. So here's a lot of what the Apostle Paul has to say to husbands in this passage. The husband is called to follow the example of Christ with the kind of love where he lays down all that he is and all that he has for the sake of the wife and the home. 
And the example is profound as he speaks of what Christ laid down and why Christ did it and the results that it has as it works the way that it is supposed to work. So Paul expands on this image speaking of Christ. It is sanctifying. This kind of sacrificial love is sanctifying. That is profound. Part of what that means is that it brings in, it allows space for the Holy Spirit to begin to work inside of a home when a husband is able to lay himself down, who he is and all that he has in sacrificial love for his wife and for his family. Guys, what it does is it doesn't make the husband greater in the home, it makes Christ greater inside of the home. 